Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening. In the first episode of this series on the life of Yukio Mishima, we were introduced to Kimitake Hiroka, the child who would grow up to become the world-renowned author Yukio Mishima. To say that Kimitake, or Mishima as he was known from age 16 onwards, was a troubled child would be an understatement. When he was only three years old, he was snatched from the care of his parents by his grandmother. She was very protective of young Kimitake, too protective, preventing him from socializing with boys his own age, forbidding him from playing outside, restricting his diet to a ridiculous degree, and so on. It is to his grandmother's influence that many biographers attribute Mishima's bizarre obsession with death, beauty, and eroticism that would characterize most of his written works. Mishima was allowed to leave his grandmother's care at the age of 12, but his father was not that much better of a caretaker. He disapproved of his son's interest in literature, calling it effeminate and decadent. On more than one occasion, he barged into his son's room and tore up whatever manuscript he was working on as young Mishima looked on helplessly. Luckily, Mishima had several people in his personal life who encouraged him to continue with his budding literary career, chief among them his mother. With help from his mother, his older peers at school, and others, Mishima became a rather prolific author, producing an impressive quantity of poems and short stories in a rather short period of time, and at such a young age at that. He wrote his first significant story in 1941, at only 16. Entitled A Forest in Full Bloom, it amazed its readers, even those significantly older than Mishima himself. Now, during this time, Japan was at war with the Allied powers in Asia and the Pacific. The tide turned against Japan in 1942, and the prospect of the war arriving on Japanese soil grew more and more real by the day. At this time, Mishima fell in with a group of ultranationalist poets and authors. He became convinced that to die for Japan would be the greatest honor of all, the ultimate expression of beauty. But when it came time for Mishima to join the Imperial Japanese Army and face death for real, he hesitated. His own body betrayed him as he grew deathly ill on the day before his medical examination. He lied to the army doctor and told him that he had been sick for nearly half a year. The doctor granted Mishima a waiver and told him to go back home. Mishima's decision to lie to the army doctor in order to escape service would haunt him for the rest of his life. After Japan was defeated in the war, the Japanese people were left in a state of uncertainty. The economy was devastated. Mishima, being the oldest child, was expected to provide for his family. According to his father's wishes, Mishima took his civil service examination, passed it with flying colors, and accepted a position in the Bureau of Finance, the most prestigious government office in all of Japan. Mishima worked diligently at his job, but he continued to write on the side. By 1948, Mishima was earning enough income from his writings that he felt secure in his decision to quit his job, with his father's blessing, of course. Almost immediately after quitting, Mishima got to work on his semi-autobiographical masterpiece, Confessions of a Mask. His stated reason for writing this work was, according to him, to exercise the demons that he felt were inside of him, to get to the bottom of his macabre obsession with death and beauty. Surprisingly, despite the very personal nature of this work, Mishima's novel was a massive hit, with readers and critics alike. It sold 20,000 copies the same year it was published. Overnight, Mishima was catapulted to national fame. As biographer Henry Scott Stokes wrote, quote, he had gained personal confidence, gave an impression of extraordinary liveliness, and attracted a great deal of attention to himself. End quote. 
But rather than rest on his laurels, Mishima kept on working at a steady pace. He set strict deadlines for himself and met them every time. Mishima completed no less than three different novels over the course of the year 1950 alone, Thirst for Love, Pure White Nights, and Age of Blue, all of which were massive successes. Thirst for Love outsold Confessions of a Mask almost fourfold, and Pure White Nights was adapted into a film almost immediately upon publishing. And those were just the novels. At this same time, Mishima was pumping out a steady stream of short stories. Also at this time, Mishima got to work writing and directing the first of his several plays that he would write in the No tradition. Entitled The Magic Pillow, Mishima's first foray into the world of stage ultimately flopped. During the period between 1949 and 1952, Mishima described himself as being, quote, more emotionally unstable at any other time in my life. I went up and down from a peak of happiness down into a pit of melancholy, end quote. It was during this period of his life that Mishima began to patronize gay clubs. Biographer John Nathan described the gay scene in post-war Japan, and Mishima's interactions with it, thusly, quote, There were no gay bars in Japan before the war. Their sudden appearance afterwards is attributable to the large foreign homosexual community, including significant numbers of soldiers, which gathered in Tokyo after the occupation. Mishima's favorite place was a gay cafe in the Ginza district of Tokyo. This was a coffee house and bar that employed attractive young waiters and was patronized by a rather bizarre combination of older, well-to-do Japanese, foreign businessmen, GIs, and Japanese hustlers. End quote. Ostensibly, Mishima's purpose in visiting these establishments was to do research for his upcoming novel, Forbidden Colors. To that end, Mishima did not participate. He did not mingle with the other patrons or anything else of that nature. One of the waiters, a man named Akihiro Maruyama, who would later go on to star in a play that Mishima wrote and directed, described him as being, quote, as pale as death, so pale that his skin had an almost purplish tint, his body seemed to float in his clothes, and yet he was a narcissist with a true eye for beauty. The key to him in those days was that when he looked at himself with those eyes that could perceive beauty, and he looked at himself constantly, he was filled with disgust at what he saw, end quote. For the sake of his health, both physical and mental, Mishima decided that he needed to get away from Japan, at least for a little bit. The thing was in those years that immediately followed the war, it was quite difficult for anyone to get out of Japan. Any travel out of the country by a native Japanese required a permit signed by General Douglas MacArthur himself. Fortunately for Mishima, he had some friends in high places. Some strings were pulled, and by December of 1951, he had gone through all the necessary background checks and acquired all of the necessary paperwork. On December 24, 1951, Mishima traveled to Yokohama and boarded the American vessel SS President Wilson. Mishima kept a detailed journal of his trip, in which he wrote on the first day, quote, I found the sun for the first time. I had come out of a dark cave. Oh, how long I had suppressed my love for the sun, end quote. After a short layover in Hawaii, Mishima arrived on the American West Coast. He spent a day each in San Francisco and Los Angeles before moving on to New York City. Mishima was rather impressed by New York. He spent 10 days there, visiting the museums and the operas. He said that New York surpassed Tokyo in nearly every regard, and that Tokyo could not reach its level even in 500 years. Mishima was nearly as impressed by the next destinations of his trip, Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. There, he stayed for a month, and was treated rather lavishly by the community of Japanese expatriates in Brazil. Towards the end of his stay came Carnival, and Mishima relinquished himself to the frenzy of the dance. His host reported that he appeared to be the happiest that he had ever seen him. 
At the beginning of March, Mishima flew from Rio to Paris. On his first day there, he was scammed out of nearly all of his money by someone running a currency exchange scam. He reported this theft to the Japanese embassy, and he was promised reimbursement, but his money would not arrive for a month. In the meantime, he found lodging with the Japanese expatriate, film director Kianosuke Kinoshita. It was a miserable month for Mishima, and his impressions of Paris were thusly quite negative. After having received his funds, Mishima stayed in London for a time briefly before heading to Greece. This would be the absolute highlight of the trip for him. Mishima had long held an interest in Greek literature and culture, and he was by no means disappointed by his visit. The sections of his travelogue dedicated to his time in Greece betray an unbridled excitement. While in Greece, a theory began to take form in Mishima's mind. He realized that the Greeks believed that beauty and ethics were one and the same, i.e., that creating a beautiful work of art and become physically beautiful were one and the same. Mishima wrote that, although his theory might be incorrect, his revelation on this trip to Greece, quote, cured my self-hatred and awoke in me a will to health, end quote. To borrow a quote from German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. The positive effect this trip had on Mishima is evidenced by his novel The Sound of the Waves, published a year afterwards. Based on the ancient Greek myth of Daphnis and Chloe, The Sound of Waves is described by John Nathan as being the only love story Mishima ever wrote that was neither perverted nor sardonic. It was, according to him, an unremittingly normal story, a classical idol of love. The Sound of Waves shattered sales records, selling 106,000 copies in the first month. Mishima's own opinion of the novel was notably jaded. In private, he referred to The Sound of Waves as a joke that he pulled on the public. As much as Mishima wanted to believe that his trip to Greece had changed him fundamentally as a person, he still had yet to put his grand theory into practice. The suicide of his friend, playwright Kato Michio, in December of 1954, once again sent Mishima into a depressive state. The death of his friend reminded him too much of the suicide of Osamu Dezai, a fellow author who Mishima saw, for better or for worse, as a kindred spirit. A month later, Mishima invited over some friends for drinks at his house. Having just turned 30 years old, Mishima expressed his concern that he was now too old to kill himself, that a suicide like Desai's would be unseemly at his old age. He then wrote a series of Chinese characters which phonetically spelled out his name, Yukio Mishima, but together, in this context, meant mysterious devil tale, devil bewitched by death. This, Mishima told his friends, was the true way one was to spell his name. In less melodramatic moments, Mishima was able to better identify the cure for his ills. In a journal entry dated June 1955, Mishima reflected on Usamu Desai, quote, The defects in his character, at least a goodly half of them, could have been cured by cold water massage, mechanical workouts, and a regularized life. To employ something of a paradox, an invalid who does not wish to recover does not qualify as a true invalid, end quote. The very next month, Mishima decided to finally put theory into practice, and he began weightlifting. He had made previous attempts at regular physical activity, first swimming and then boxing. He was not particularly adept at either and gave up on both after a while. But from the day he began lifting weights in July 1955, he would maintain his strict regimen of three workouts a week for the rest of his life, allowing absolutely nothing, neither sickness nor travel or anything else, to interfere. There were obstacles to be sure. Mishima struggled greatly in the first years. Other bodybuilders dismissed Mishima as being too anemic to lift seriously. But through sheer force of will he persisted. Mishima's taking up bodybuilding was not purely for reasons of physical health. 
he was also motivated by a kind of narcissism. He was greatly embarrassed by his pale, sickly, and emaciated appearance, and sought to change it. Ultimately, as he wrote in his autobiographical essay, Sun and Steel, Mishima concluded that he took up bodybuilding in his quest for the ultimate verification of his existence. For Mishima, one of the highest points in all of his life was carrying the Mikoshi Shrine down the streets of Tokyo. Mikoshi are portable Shinto shrines weighing, on average, about 2,000 pounds. On occasions such as festivals, the Mikoshi are paraded up and down the streets of the neighborhood, carried by around 60 men. In Confessions of a Mask, Mishima described a memory from his early childhood of witnessing such a spectacle. Quote, I could gradually distinguish the stuttering roar of the drums and the medley of rhythmic shouts from the youths shouldering the sacred shrine. My heart was beating so suffocatingly that I could hardly stand. Behind the priests leading the procession came the shrine itself. It seemed a malevolent sluggishness, trembling hotly above the naked shoulders of the young men carrying it. The shrine drew closer and closer. The young men carrying it were wearing summer kimono, all of the same pattern, the thin cotton material revealing nearly all of their bodies and their motions, making it appear as though the shrine itself were staggering, drunk. Their legs seemed to be in one great tangle, and it was as though their eyes were looking on things not of this earth. Through it all, there was only one vividly clear thing, a thing that horrified and lacerated me, filling my heart with unaccountable agony. This was the expressions on the faces of the young men carrying the shrine, an expression of the most obscene and undisguised intoxication in the world. End quote. As Nathan suggests, this intoxication was the intoxication of existence, from which Mishima had felt he had been excluded all of his life. Now, several years later, after having trained for a whole year in the gym, Mishima was finally able to participate in this intoxication. Mishima later described the experience of carrying the Mikoshi Shrine as a life-changing one. He wrote that he beheld the same divine blue sky as the others had, and that as he carried the Mikoshi, he felt as though he was drowned in life. The year 1956 marked a high point for Mishima, both emotionally and in terms of his career. This was the year that he published The Temple of the Golden Pavilion, a fictionalized account of the arson of the temple of the same name, which had occurred only six years prior. In Mishima's telling of the story, the culprit of the crime is a young Buddhist acolyte, who sets the temple ablaze in an attempt to free himself from his obsession with beauty. The novel was widely lauded and outsold all of Mishima's previous novels by a wide margin. Most biographers consider 1956 to be the pinnacle of Mishima's career. He was at the height of fame and success. He, according to his translator Donald Keane, wanted to take over the world with his writing, and in fact he looked poised to do just that. In July the next year, Mishima traveled once again to America, this time for the express purpose of promoting his work. This trip was not nearly as successful as he had initially hoped. His first stop on the strip was the University of Michigan, where he gave a lecture, in his very rehearsed English, about Japanese literature. Next, he traveled to New York, where he was disappointed to hear that he was not nearly as much of a household name as he was in Japan. Still, Mishima was able to secure the rights to produce a play on Broadway. However, the production process went so horribly that the other directors banned him from being present on set during production. So acrimonious was the relationship between Mishima and the directors of the play that he even refused to see it when it debuted. He cut short his stay in New York and returned to Japan by way of Europe in January of 1957. Very shortly upon his return, Mishima began to search for a bride. The reasons for this were threefold. Firstly, it was not exactly socially acceptable that the eldest child remain unmarried into his 30s especially as his younger brother Chiyuchiki had been married for three years already. 
Secondly, rumors of Mishima's homosexuality had begun to surface, and he sought to quash them immediately. Thirdly, and most seriously, he had been informed that his mother Shizue had cancer and was likely to die soon. Mishima was adamant that his mother saw him married before she passed. Shortly after his return from his last out-of-country trip back in 1952, Mishima briefly dated a girl named Aiko, who was a student at Tokyo University. Their relationship was almost entirely platonic, and predicated nearly entirely on their mutual passion for the masquerade. Nathan recounted one such example of, in his biography of Mishima, quote, He would telephone her and ask her to meet him in a plain dress and without makeup in front of the main gate of Tokyo University. At the appointed time, he would appear dressed in his old student uniform and inform her that they were going on a student date. He would then take her to his Greek class and afterwards they would go to a drab and dingy student hangout for tea and curry rice, end quote. The relationship ended due to conflicts between Aiko and Shizue. Mishima might have considered her as a possible candidate for marriage regardless, had she not married someone else in 1955. When Mishima began his search for a bride in 1957, there was one girl in particular who attracted his attention, an unnamed girl who was a big fan of Mishima's composer friend, Toshiro Mayuzumi. He asked Mayuzumi to approach this girl, who responded that she would rather kill herself than marry Mishima. Mishima was persistent and attempted to go on a date with this girl regardless, which ended in disaster. Now rather unsure in his ability to procure a fiancé in the modern way, Mishima opted to have an arranged marriage. He used his high society connections as intermediaries to seek out women who met the following five requirements. 1. She must wish to marry Kimitake Hiroka, the private citizen, and not Yukio Mishima, the, the famous author. 2. She must be no taller than her husband. 3. She must be pretty and have a round face. 4. She must be eager to take care of Mishima's parents and be capable of running the household. And 5. She must not disturb Mishima while he worked. One of his first audiences was with Michiko Shoda, the daughter of a flower company executive. Her parents ultimately found Mishima's stipulations to be too stringent, and Michiko went on to marry the crown prince of Japan, Akihito. A quick aside. In 1958, a magazine ran a poll of Japan's young women, asking if Crown Prince Akihito and Yukio Mishima were the only two eligible men on the planet, which would they prefer to marry? Nearly half of the respondents said that they'd prefer to commit suicide than marry either one. Anyway, Mishima eventually settled on 19-year-old Yoko Sugiyama. Yoko was shorter than Mishima by two inches, cute and round-faced, and, above all, was willing to play the role of Mishima's wife to the public, and willing to stay out of Mishima's private affairs. Mishima met Yoko twice in early 1958, and the two were engaged by that May. On account of his mother's health, Mishima wanted to rush ahead with the wedding preparations, which caused no small amount of consternation on the part of the two families. Yoko and Yukio were married on June 11, 1958, Given that neither of them really spoke at length about their domestic situation, we can only speculate as to what their marriage was truly like. Given what we know about Mishima's sexuality, i.e., that he was unable to find true sexual gratification outside of his fantasies of death and gore, it can be presumed that their relationship was not an overtly sexual one. Nevertheless, the marriage produced two children, Noriko, born in 1959, and Ichiro, born in 1962. By all accounts, the relationship between the two seemed rather warm, and they seemed to genuinely enjoy one another's companionship. Seeing as how Mishima was primarily searching for a woman who could effectively play the part of his wife so that he could fulfill his societal role, 
That he and Yoko seem to have gotten on so well together is an added bonus. Yoko did not get along so well with Mishima's mother, Shizue. As it turned out, the cancer did not take Shizue's life as soon as was initially feared. In fact, she stuck around for quite some time. For the first year and a half or so of Mishima's marriage, he and Yoko lived in a house with his parents. However, the conflict between Shizue and Yoko, Shizue was still quite overprotective of Mishima, even at his old age, led Mishima to think that it was necessary to build a house of his own. Unlike the typical Japanese house, which was small and unpretentious, the house that Mishima envisioned would be garish and as large as he could afford. The house Mishima designed was, in his own words, his dream, or nightmare, of Victorian opulence. Some words I have seen used to describe this house are colonial, rococo, Italianate, and Victorian. Regardless of how one wishes to classify it architecturally, the house was a monstrosity, antithetical to all good Japanese taste. Now, after having been married and designed and built his own house, he finally finished another house of his own, Kyoko's house, a novel which he had been steadily laboring at writing for the past year and a half, the longest period of time Mishima had ever dedicated to writing a single work thus far. To be fair, Mishima put much of himself in the novel, in the sense that the novel's four protagonists, the boxer, the actor, the painter, and the businessman, each represented an aspect of Mishima's psyche. In The Businessman, Mishima represented his desire to play the role of a normal person and to lead a seemingly conventional life. In The Painter, Mishima represented his death drive, his desire to kill himself while he remained young and beautiful. In The Actor, Mishima represented his narcissism and his desire to overcome his existential angst through bodybuilding. And finally, and most presciently, Mishima represented his political philosophy and his search for identity through direct, possibly violent, political action, a grim portent of Mishima's ultimate fate. Kyoko's House was an extremely important book for Mishima to write, much as Confessions of a Mask had been for him earlier in his life. Mishima bore his soul in writing Kyoko's House, yet unlike Confessions of a Mask, Kyoko's House did not resonate with the public in quite the same way. It sold far fewer copies than Mishima had anticipated, and the critics tore it to shreds. Kyoko's house was, in every regard, Mishima's first major failure, so much so that it is one of Mishima's few novels that has not been translated into English as of 2021. This failure had a profound effect on Mishima. After all, he had been met with nothing but success throughout his entire literary career. Ever since he was 16, he hadn't the taste of failure, and now, for such a pivotal work of his to fail so spectacularly, is it any wonder that Mishima did not set out to write another major novel until half a decade later? Still, Mishima felt an urgent need to earn the recognition that Kyoko's house should have afforded him. So he decided, at the end of 1959, that he wished to star in a film. Mishima looked at several scripts, but he knew what he wanted from a role. He wanted to play a leather jacket-wearing gangster, and he wanted to die at the end. The script that he decided to accept was for a film called Tough Guy alternatively released in English as Afraid to Die. The film was a grubby crime drama. The hero of the film, whom Mishima played, is a gangster released from prison after having avenged the murder of his father. The hero gets caught up in a love affair with a woman portrayed by popular actress Ayako Wakao. The hero gets the girl pregnant, and after struggling for a while, he decides to accept responsibility for the child. As the protagonist goes out to buy supplies for his new family, a rival gang catches up with him and stabs him to death in the street. The end result was a film that contemporary critics derided as bland, 
but is, is far more interesting from a biographical perspective. Mishima's biographers Henry Scott Stokes and John Nathan were both in agreement that Mishima felt very much out of place in a film like this. A quote from Nathan. As I watched, Mishima's tough guy facade dissolved, and there emerged a man with no physical reality at all, a timid, womanish, and cerebral man with an inherent loathing for vulgarity, violence, and really physicality of any kind. It was uncomfortable to watch a man labor so hard to become something so antithetical to himself. End quote. Stokes, on the other hand, interpreted Mishima's decision to star in Afraid to Die as a rebuke to his critics, but also as a sign of his deteriorating mental state. 1960 was a year of great political tumult in Japan. This year, the 1952 U.S.-Japan Security Treaty was up for renewal. The Japanese left wing opposed the renewal of the treaty as it provided for continued U.S. military presence in the country. Starting in April, massive student demonstrations broke out in Tokyo, which led to clashes with police and far-right extremists. Mishima took great interest in these demonstrations, and he took to the streets to report on them as though he were a news correspondent. Around the same time, Mishima published After the Banquet, a novel dealing with the exploits of the smoke-filled rooms of Tokyo politics. After the Banquet was, compared to Kyoko's house, of success. In it, Mishima demonstrated his intimate knowledge of political goings-on, so much so that politician Hachiro Arita sued Mishima for invasion of privacy, the first such case to ever be held in Japanese history. After a long four years in court, Mishima eventually lost the case. Mishima's covering of the protests and publishing of After the Banquet were indications that he was growing to become more and more politically inclined. As though these weren't enough, there was the release of his short story, Patriotism. Patriotism, like Kyoko's house, reads as a grim statement of intent, at least from retrospect. The story deals with an army officer involved in the 1936 attempted coup d'etat, known as the February 26th Incident. The instigators of these rebellion were some 21 young army officers, who believed that the current Japanese government had betrayed the emperor. On the morning of February 26, 1936, these officers led a contingent of over a thousand soldiers to occupy strategic points throughout Tokyo. They issued their demands, that complete power over both the government and military be ceded back to the emperor. Unfortunately for the rebellious officers, the emperor himself was none too pleased with the rebellion, and ordered the loyal units of the army to crush it. Most of the rebels, rather than fight their comrades, opted instead to surrender. Many committed suicide, while others were executed after the fact. This is the dilemma that the protagonist of Mishima's story, Patriotism, finds himself in. Upon learning of the rebellion, the protagonist resolves to commit suicide, rather than to face down his fellow soldiers in combat. He and his wife engage in one final act of passionate intercourse before the protagonist commits seppuku, ritual self-disembowelment, described in excruciating detail. Patriotism is significant for two reasons. One, it signaled Mishima's increasing interest in political subjects that would characterize the final decade of his career, and two, it was an expression of Mishima's latent death drive, as described in Confessions of a Mask. Patriotism, as Nathan wrote, suggested that Mishima's imagination was beginning to resolve as a means of acquiring the death that he had so often desired. Nobody could have known at the time exactly how true to life patriotism would turn out to be. And that is where I will leave things for now. Be sure to tune in next time as we delve into the final decade of Mishima's career and his ultimate demise. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to address them to me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. 
Alternatively, you can contact me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the description. And before we leave today, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to the podcast's new editor, Chloe Flatley, with whom I plan to be working with rather closely over the course of the next season of the podcast. Anyway, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.